This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Dr. Jonathan Cachet is a neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology who has extensively studied the effects of psychoactive substances on zebrafish. Dr. Cachet was involved in pioneering the first ever cannabis lab technician program at Hawking College in Ohio. He is currently involved in digitizing pre-prohibition research for the Cannabis Museum in Cincinnati. Dr. Cachet is active in promoting sound public policy that would allow kratom, cannabis, and psychedelics to be studied and utilized to their full potential. So you said you had your, your fingers in a lot of pots. Yeah, I would say, you know, most, uh, most recently, uh, I've been working with the Cannabis Museum, uh, which is a collection that has been growing over the last 50 years. The Cannabis Museum has been collecting uh, uh, cultural artifacts that document medical cannabis use prior to federal prohibition in 1937. Um, you know, not a lot of people know that there were doctors all over the U.S., in 18, the late 1800s that were prescribing cannabis indica for insomnia or um, ca- cannabis sativa uh, for other sort of inflammatory uh, type diseases. And so, you know, these are actual prescriptions that, ha- that were put in what was called a waste book way back then that actually have, you know, a, doc- a doctor's letterhead on it have a cannabis prescription there. So I'm working on digitizing those items to sort of increase their usefulness to the, the culture uh, more broadly. Um, so I'm, I'm, we're working on digitizing those, those items at the Cannabis Museum. Um, I'm also working with the Cleveland School of Cannabis. Uh, I pulled together curriculum for their industrial hemp uh, comprehensive course. It starts this August online um, and may even be the instructor for that. We're trying to work out some details there, but yeah, I tend to I tend to bounce from project to project as needed. I've read about that in the past. It was like a legitimate, legitimately being researched, and then we had an eighty-year break with the prohibition. Uh, so, what led up to the prohibition? Um, that that was in the late thirties. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 so. You you nail you nail it on that great thing. What what I usually say is for tens of thousands of years, cannabis was a uh, industrial a, a food source and a, a medicine for our for our species. It's only for the last eighty years in our entire human uh, history's perspective that it's been demonized, not good for you, will ruin your potential, etc. So why did that happen? Um, it would be a much cleaner and clear cut answer to say that it was done because we found out for some reason that people were actually getting harmed through cannabis use, right? There was a new scientific development and Hey, guess what? It actually turned out. It could do this for you and it could be bad. That unfortunately is not the case. There isn't a clear cut um, reason as to why in 1937 and, you know, as echoed by those before me, this is primarily cannabis prohibition from the beginning has always been a social political tool to marginalize individuals that are politically inconvenient at the time. Um, so in 1937, it started um, really with back then Californians were trying to keep Latinos out 
and they chose the name marijuana because to the Latinos it meant uh, Mary's plant, uh, and for a very Christian uh, uh, culture, that was uh, deemed appetizable to them while also sounding foreign and Mexican enough to the Americans that they could start uh, demonizing it. And, you know, it's really just gotten worse from there. Yeah, so it really has nothing to do with the danger of actual cannabis. And I, I was actually just watching a lecture you gave um, right before right before we started talking, and you had a chart with um, addiction potential and lethal potential of different drugs, and cannabis was way down in the corner where it wasn't very addictive or very lethal at all. So where do you think uh, Kratom would be on that chart? You know, that's a great question. You ha- we have to avoid putting Kratom in the category of an opiate. And when I say opiate, I mean hydrocodone, oxycodone, um, heroin, hydromorphinone, um, to where there are chemicals that uh, specifically bind to your, your body's opiate receptors, right? And so if, if it were just as clear-cut as that, you would essentially say, it's about as, uh, you know, it has the addictive potential as codeine, which can get you physically addicted. It can get you psychologically addicted. It's kind of hard to overdose on, on that type of molecule, though. The truth about Kratom, though, is that we don't have a complete chemical and molecular characterization of the uh, uh, metrogenine or uh, the hydroxymetrogenine and those chemicals and the other sort of concert of chemicals that come from Kratom as well. And I'm a firm believer, even though I'm a scientist, uh, you know, a, a trained neuroscientist with a PhD now, that sometimes social and cultural uh, sciences have better evidence than modern medical science, right? And so the point I'm making is that if Kratom stood to be a real um, biological danger to any human or biological organism that consumed it, we would know that already, um, and we would have warnings in place about it. I mean, people know innately not to just eat mushrooms off the floor of the forest unless they're for sure they know what mushroom it is. That's yeah. because a lot of people died doing that, right? Yeah. Um, and so just like with fetal alcohol syndrome too, like I'll get questions all the time from, from friends that are now growing up and having kids. And they say, well, look, you know, I use cannabis because it helps me deal with my OCD. It keeps my stress levels down. I'd rather do that than have half a bottle of wine at the end of the night. Do I need to worry about being pregnant and consuming cannabis? Well, the first, the first thing is I'm not a medical doctor. Talk to a medical doctor about this as well, but there is no fetal, fetal cannabis baby syndrome. There's fetal alcohol syndrome because a lot of people went through that. They have seen the negative consequences of that, and now there's a cultural sort of shunning of that type of behavior. And so, you know, sometimes it's worth just at least taking an equal perspective of how long has this plant been on the planet? How long have we been on the planet? What are the sort of um, the cultural stories passed down about consuming it? And weigh that evidence a little bit higher than even that of modern medical science. Now, you're in Ohio, and you've been uh, following the Kratom issue there. Um, so what what's going on there? What kind of science are they using to justify wanting to ban it? I know the Board of Pharmacy was trying to ban it last year. I, I've been in Ohio, and I've been in, in sort of 
drug activism, quote unquote, or maybe we'll just say molecular activism for some time now. Um, and I guess what I would describe Kratom as being trying to force into the sort of same uh, path that cannabis prohibition was shoved down. Um, a lot of hysteria, a lot of fear tactics, a lot of using uh, scientific language in sort of a misconstrued way to sort of bum rush politicians and legislators who have a, you know, a whole different set of skills and jobs to worry about um, to get something illegal that, that really is becoming illegal because of um, someone somewhere is probably losing money. And so I have been trying in Ohio very um, intently to allow medical cannabis to be prescribed for opiate use disorder. Yeah. Um, so what I'm really fighting for is the ability for medical doctors to have a conversation with their patients about using cannabis instead of going right to opiates, right? If you're already addicted and you're coming off of opiate uh, addiction, yes, cannabis can be helpful. But it also can be helpful before going to opiates because, like you mentioned at the top, less addictive potential, less physical addiction potential, less like psychological addiction potential. Back in the day when um, treatments for opiate uses went in front of the state medical board, uh, a pharmaceutical company brought a longer lasting opiate to the table, like Suboxone, and there were several other doctors in the audience that says, we don't really have the evidence to support taking people who are addicted to short-lasting opiates and treating them with longer-lasting opiates in order to kick that addiction, right? Yeah. We're, we're, they're addicted to opiates. We're giving them opiates. And the, and the medical community was like, this is not very good science here. There's not a lot of evidence for it. However, the politicians said, we have to fire every bullet at the, at the problem of opiate addiction that we have. So this may not be the best solution. The science might not be there yet, but it doesn't matter. We're going to allow it. And so now in Ohio, if you are addicted to opiates, the default and um, insurance paid for and politically supported way to get you off of opiate addiction is to put you on longer lasting opiates. And, you know, there's a collective sigh amongst our community because we've been through it. We know what that means. We know that that's not really helping anybody. Yeah. But I, I, it's important to mention that because it really reflects truly on where we are now. Fast forward a, a year, and this is one year ago now, cannabis goes up in front of the medical board. And there are not a lot of doctors in the audience saying, yes, pass this, yes, pass this. I'm saying pass this. There are no doctors in the audience saying, don't pass this. But for some reason, the state medical board goes, there's not enough evidence to support the use of cannabis for opiate use disorder. Therefore, we're going to deny cannabis. So they let the longer lasting opiates through. They shut down cannabis for a lack of evidence. It's a, it's a, uh, a complete 180 in the same scenario, but yeah. this time it would have actually helped the, the, the general public. About a year ago, uh, they wanted to make Kratom a Schedule One compound, which means absolutely no medical value, absolutely high addictive potential, and can't even be used safely in the presence of a medical doctor. Now, there are very, very few drugs 
that uh, are even actually in the in that meet those qualifications of schedule. And everybody, I'm sure, listening to this podcast knows that cannabis certainly shouldn't be in a schedule one, especially mm-hmm. if uh, oxycodone and hydrocodone are schedule two. So it's a way to it's a buck to throw compounds in that you want to get rid of and you don't want to deal with again. So for all the amount of time that I spent in the capital of Columbus um, advocating on behalf of, of expanding medical, the medical cannabis program, when I went down the day that they were uh, holding the public hearings for Kratom, I have never, ever seen that many people in the state building standing up and sharing their story about how Kratom has saved their life or made their quality of life improve. I mean, literally, I got there at 8 a.m. I signed up on the, the speaking list at 8.30. They didn't call my name till 3.30 in the afternoon. It was just every single overflow room was filled. There was a line out the door. And thankfully, uh, the, the representatives there from the state medical board um, and the medical community in Ohio heard, you know, old people, young people, black people, white people, brown people from every walk of life saying, you cannot make this a schedule one. It's got, you know, it, it, it's going to, it's going to ruin all the progress that we've made with whatever ailment they've been treating it with. So that was great. You know, it was, it was like, wow, uh, the system worked. They, they yeah. had a public hearing. They actually gave people the opportunity to share their truth or their story. And they decided to scrap the plans to go to schedule one. Nice. You know, you rarely get those, political wins while advocating for for different um psychoactive compounds i don't want to just categorize them as drugs um so then you gotta imagine the sort of like you know head down on the desk sort of exhausted uh head head or forehead bang that i had when i found out again uh someone is trying to use the political system in ohio to get creatum to be a schedule one again this year so they're back and they're not going through the state medical board this time. They decided to go through the Ohio Department of Agriculture, um, which is interesting for a number of reasons. The, the, the first two being this is a political avenue in which you can do so, you know, play the game of politics in a way that you didn't play last time. So maybe people won't even notice about it this time. But it's interesting because the, in most states, the Department of Agriculture oversees uh, the regulation and farming of what are considered agricultural commodities, right? So corn and soybeans are huge agricultural commodities in, in Ohio, whereas like sunflowers um, or dandelions, while they are plants that grow in Ohio, aren't agricultural commodities. So the purview of dandelions or sunflowers is not within the Ohio Department of Agriculture. It's out of their jurisdiction. Uh, the same is true with Kratom. It's not grown as an agricultural commodity in Ohio. It's not within the jurisdiction of the Ohio Department of Agriculture, but it seems that for some reason, the Ohio Department of Agriculture has now become aware of this existential threat that is Kratom, and they want to try to regulate it. So there are, there are people that, that would like to make Kratom illegal, and they're back at it again, and they're doing it through this avenue now in Ohio, and, of course, I'm trying to rally the community I can here in Ohio to just say, like, hold on, hold on. Let's pump the brakes here. Why are we doing this? 
Are people dying and we need this type of emergency legislation right now or forever hold our peace? Or is there some more games of politics going on? So why do you think they are trying to discount Kratom and ban Kratom when it's helped so many people got get off opiates? And Ohio was one of the um, one of the worst states for, uh, with the opiate crisis. You're right. It's a, it's a great question again. And, and it, you know, especially with if this is the state where we want to fire every bullet in the gun that we know of to the opiate problem, the opiate epidemic, then why would they be trying to ban Kratom? There are, there are millions um, that have discovered it on their own and that have used it to get off of opiates and have seen their friends get off of opiates. It has saved so many lives. So why now? You know, I don't know the specific answer to that question. And, and I don't know if we really need to know because we all sort of get the feeling of what it is, right? And so the best I can say is somewhere someone is losing market share or losing money and they're not, and people are going over to Kratom and they're saying Kratom is, is taking money out of my pocket and I don't like that. Let's make it illegal. It's, it's to gain competitive advantage. Now, I'm trying to say that in a broad enough way to sort of capture that, but I don't know specifically what it is. I'm just trying to go with based on, you know, broad, broad uh, indicators of human behavior and, and using the political system in this way to gain or maintain competitive advantage. But that's, that's what it's got to be. Because people are being benefited from the uh, ability to safely access Kratom and use it in a, a way where, they're being informed from those before them uh, on how to safely use it uh, to get themselves off of uh, more addictive, more dangerous drugs. A lot of drugs are studied with grants, and I know you've done it yourself with uh, the zebrafish and stuff with uh, from the National Institutes of Drug Abuse. So as a scientist, you said in the lecture I watched, you had to have this narrative about LSD and trying to understand it um, as it relates to drug addiction. So is it a lot of people in our community would just say it's big pharma, you know, putting their tentacles out there. But is there like a culture of we have to study drugs based on abuse? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the National Institutes of Health is made up of several um, divisions. One of those divisions is the National Institute of Drug Abuse. So if you're going to get money to study drugs in the U.S. In a, in a major university system, I was down at Tulane University in the pharmacology department uh, in New Orleans, we could, I couldn't submit a grant to them that said, I want to study the effects of LSD on human consciousness and try to sort of unlock the secrets of human consciousness. You know, one of the remaining big questions of the natural sciences. It's our nature of the universe, nature of consciousness, right? They're not funding those studies. Maybe the National Science Foundation, is, NSF, is, is funding those studies. But in general, if you're going to study psychoactive compounds and you want to get funding for it, you're getting it from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which therein lies the sort of problem. You have to frame it as drug abuse and, and drug studies, right? And so uh, there, there are two paths sort of here. The first thing is it would be great even if NIDA was funding Kratom studies, right? I don't think there are a lot of major university labs in the U.S. that are looking into actually unpacking the concert of chemicals that are in Kratom, um, to begin with, right? So 
But then again, you're right. They would have to study it as if it is already known and accepted that this is a drug of an abuse that we need to get better controls on um, in order to protect public safety, right? So then you jump to the private, you know, private sector. There are, there are pharmaceutical companies who are studying Kratom because they want to understand the molecular structure, modify it slightly, and then patent that structure and put it in a pill uh, and, and sell it to people rather than the, the sort of hydrocodone or the, the standard opiates that are currently out there. Um, so, you know, unlocking those motives and, and thinking about the different approaches, there's, there's not a lot of people studying Kratom in a way that needs to, and that's sort of what led to this whole mess in the beginning, is that they were trying to ban it at the federal level, and they were using just molecular modeling tools to do so, and they said, oh, it binds to this one receptor. That means it's this type of compound. Let's make it a Schedule One." And thankfully, uh, cooler heads prevailed, and that wasn't the case uh, at the federal level here in the U.S. That, and I think NIDA granted University of Florida like $3 million or something last year uh, to study Kratom, but I guess that's, yeah, compared to everything else, that's not that much. But uh, And yeah, $3 million goes very quickly when you're talking about, you know, institutional scientific research. It's yeah. not cheap. Um, you did study zebrafish, and there was like some other blog uh, from it was another kratom blog that that was questioning the study of zebrafish. And I just wanted to ask you, why are zebrafish good subjects, test subjects to use on the study of drugs? And and some people would say, well, humans are so different. And how 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 does that work? So I mean, that's true, but nowhere anywhere are you allowed to get. Uh, it's called institutional review board approval to just give humans uh, like, I think it was only within the last five or six years for the first time ever, we gave humans LSD and put them into an MRI machine to see what happened to their brain activity. Yeah. Like the fact that that hasn't happened already, or it took that long just to get to that sort of exemplifies the problem, right? So you can't just give drugs to humans and experiment on them. It, it, there, there are moral and ethical implications. So you have to go to animal models. Yeah, okay, yeah. now we're in the realm of animal models. Okay, so typically drug discovery studies are done in uh, mice, rats, maybe skeletons, and what I was doing was in zebrafish. Um, rats and mice are mammals, so they're a little closer to humans, but they cost uh, $5 a day to keep them alive. They cost $50 to get special genetics per mouse. So there, there are increased costs there just to, keep, just to obtain the mice, just to keep the mice alive. You know, there are all of these costs that build up. And when you're doing drug screening, you're essentially making a bunch of variants of one type of molecule, and you want to see if it changes behavior in some way. Um, yeah. So it can become expensive and complicated to do that in a thousand mice. Zebrafish, on the other hand, is very easy to do something like that with. They cost maybe 10 cents, 5 cents a piece. Um, yeah. You can put the, a small amount of drug in the water and you can record their behavior. And so really my graduate, and yes, they have similar genetics. They have similar brain structures, homologous structures. But it's not to suggest that you would go from zebrafish right to humans. Yeah. It's just that you could start with zebrafish, eliminate a bunch of those uh, compounds that don't have any effect, 
and narrow in on the ones that do and then take that to mice and other organisms before we get to humans. So yeah. um, my, my graduate research was sort of laying the foundation in cataloging and quantifying zebrafish behavior so that we can, I was using artificial intelligence and machine learning to, I, I, I reached out to a group, I know, you know when they're doing um, hurricane prediction algorithms, they have the U.S. model and they have the European model. So I worked with the group in Switzerland that contributed to the development of that European model. And rather than applying uh, the, this, uh, the machine learning to hurricane paths, I gave it, this is a bunch of zebrafish on LSD. This is a bunch of zebrafish on caffeine. Tell me what the differences are. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the, the computer then was able to predict, like, with about 80%, 90% accuracy, uh, the molecule you gave that fish was a dopaminergic or was a serotonergic or was a, uh, a, a gabamatergic, something like that. Okay. Um, so uh, there was sort of foundational work back then. You said it's important to remember that drugs are neither good nor bad. And as related to uh, Kratom, there's, you said there's a slow, slow burn on methods administration and it's a good exit ramp off of usually opiates. So explain right. a little bit about that. You see me shy away from using the word uh, drugs. Yeah. Drugs yeah. has a negative co connotation, and it's really uh, confabulating, like, the wonderful diversity and sort of a beauty behind, like, 12 compounds that are some of the most magical that we have on the planet, right? They're not, not all drugs are the same, and, in fact, drugs are just compounds, chemical compounds that have psycho or biological activity, right? So drugs, drugs are neither good nor bad. They just exist. That's it. The, the, the poison is usually in the dose or in the method of administration. And what I mean by a slow burn on method of administration is at least in my personal experience and the experience of those that I've helped um, around me and in hearing back from other people, when you're addicted to pharmaceutical opiates, you've, get, you've got a pure version of hydrocodone or oxycodone in your hands to take it. You just pop the pill or you, or you, you, know, you, you do something else with it, but it's real easy. There are, there's nothing really um, physically holding you back from getting this compound into your body. Um, the same would be true if they took the active chemicals in Kratom and put them in a pill. Uh, the method of administration is too convenient. It's too easy. With Kratom, though, especially in, like, the, the plant form, in its natural form, um, it's not that easy to take. Now, for someone who's coming off of, uh, t you know, popping 40 Vicodins a day, the reason why addicts behave the way they do is because they're fearful of withdrawal or they're fearful of the feelings of withdrawal. They are extremely unpleasant. Um, you know, it's like anxiety times a, a million. It's it just, you shake, you can't sleep, you're throwing up, you're sweating, you're hot, you're cold. Um, so the idea of taking, you know, 10 to 15 half gram capsules of Kratom, if it's going to take the edge off of that, the first day you decide not to take all those Vicodin is worth it. The, 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 the sort of cost-benefit of analysis is worth it. And so the, people will take a bunch of capsules. 
the, the withdrawal symptoms will ease. But then like two, three weeks later, they'll, you know, they'll wake up and they're so used to just popping a pill that they'll sort of pretty soon the method of administration of consuming a bunch of plant matter will catch up to you. And at some point, most people get to the point where they're like, I don't want to cough up kratom powder anymore after I swallow a bunch of capsules on an empty stomach. And it gradually, you gradually phase out from use where like, okay, for example, Suboxone is a pill. Most people I know that got off of Vicodin or, or Oxycontin that went into Suboxone, are still taking Suboxone. Yeah. Um, whereas most people I know that use Kratom to get off Oxy or Hydrocodone are, are maybe they'll use it when they, you know, they twist their ankle and they want to take something that's a little bit more effective at, killing that sprain or the pain of that sprain, but they're not taking it every day just to get by after they've made it through the worst of the withdrawal. And so that's what I mean uh, by saying that a slow burn on method of administration. So something that gradually becomes less and less convenient and easy to consume is good for getting people out of or off of uh, an addiction uh, or an exit ramp from addiction, a lot like uh, I, I mentioned, uh, or you mentioned at the beginning of the question. I hear that a lot, and we have a lot of comments that that agree with that too. Um, kratom also seems to get rid of cravings for other drugs and alcohol. Do you know why that is? It, it's a it's a great question, and you know I am uh, well aware from you know subreddits and other podcasts and other forums that there are a large swath of alcoholics that have used Kratom to kick the booze, um, which I think is a, a wonderful thing. Um, I think that alcoholism has probably got to be a little bit more difficult than being addicted to opiates because it's just so pervasive in our, in our culture, right? Like yeah. it's kind of like trying to quit tobacco. Like you can't make it 10 steps down the street without seeing tobacco and alcohol and you know, the, the we could get on that gripe, uh, you know, a, a whole nother podcast episode. Yeah. Now I am not, I don't have a physiological or neuroscientific mechanism behind why alcoholics find relief in, in the compounds that are in Kratom. And in fact, I don't think science has a good even catalog of the compounds that are in Kratom and their mechanistic action to really even start speculating on, yeah. on how that may work. But then, so if I don't have, you know, neuroscience, some of the mechanisms to discuss, then like I mentioned at the onset, I default now to sort of social neuroscience or social sciences to say, okay, why may this be? So I think, and I think there are several other sociologists or neuroscientists that study human nature that would, that will support me in saying this, that the desire to modify your state of consciousness in some way is seeming to be sort of a central tenet of what human nature is, right? Since the beginning of time, we have found and kept with us and shared uh, different natural substances that modify your consciousness in some way. And, and I don't want you to think like, 
modify your consciousness with psychedelics, I would say that coffee counts, caffeine counts um, as modifying your state of being. And so there's part of me at this point to when I try to think about what relief alcoholics are getting from Kratom, in some way, maybe they have just found um, a less harmful, less debilitating, um, and somewhat pleasant way to modify their consciousness that isn't them getting tanked and fighting someone or driving and hurting someone. Mm. Um, so they've sort of funneled that desire to just, you know, be slightly left of center from sort of dead sober. Um, and they've done it in a way with Kratom that, that just helps them for, that it becomes a new way to do it that has less weight, has less side effects, has less hangover, has less, you know, just sort of uh, attention drawn to themselves. And that, that would be my best answer at this point. I don't know if there, if there's more to it than that. There, there's part of me that says there has to be, yeah. um, but I don't think science is there yet. What we do know at this point is that it works, that it has worked for hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and that it is at the very least worth the investment in the scientific research money to explore the chemistry of why that is more, because we could probably help more people along the way if we had a, bit, a better understanding. Yeah, and you mentioned consciousness too, which is kind of, you know, like an abstract idea um, that not necessarily uh, usually is associated with the scientific study. But can we learn about consciousness, whatever that is, from studying the effects of different substances on the brain? Well, yes. Um, yeah. Yes, of course. I mean, that's why. So when, when people say drugs are bad or don't do drugs, that's what. Me, as a neuroscientist who views these chemicals as tools to probe the function of the nervous system, when you're, you're basically saying all the best tools you got, they're all bad, you don't get to study them. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> wait a second here, wait a second. So, you know, of course we have to probe the nature of consciousness with things that alter conscious states um, and, you know, LSD, for example, is one of the most profound alterations in your sense of self and yourself of the world around you, yet you're taking micrograms of this compound. And it's it just, just that relationship alone is like, holy shit, you know, what can we learn from here? <clears throat> but so the psychedelics, and, and we're just getting into now, um, actually like i mentioned earlier studying the effects of the you know so we're looking at lsd psilocybin dmt ibogaine these other psychedelics which are all different from each other on human consciousness and and that the, uh, we will make great leaps forward the more that sort of institutional research mechanism is able to use those tools to continue to probe consciousness but that's sort of the psychedelics and hallucinogenics are sort of off to the side. Those are probably the best tools to uncover more answers when it comes to consciousness. Yeah. The other ones like uh, opiates or alcohol or uh, benzodiazepines, we know how those affect the nervous system. I mean, for alcohol, it's just a large swath of central nervous system depression. I mean, it makes neurons 
cell wall a little more fluid. It's, it's not like alcohol. You take it and it binds to a receptor and that causes downstream action in the neuron behind it. It sort of is just like the entire brain gets soaked in it and sort of things get fuzzy and we don't really know what happens. Um, the same is true with like uh, benzodiazepines. We know that benzodiazepines bind to your, your brain's GABA system and releases to the, the, leads to the release of other central nervous system or neurotransmitter central nervous system depressants. It's an ancient system. It's the oldest sort of brake system in the brain. So when you take benzos, you're going to depress the central nervous system. That's, that is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, some, there are some ways we know how to make the brain go up. We know how to make the brain go down. I mean, it, it would be like cocaine versus Xanax, right? We know that that happens. So, and it was very clear in the zebrafish when we gave them cocaine versus we gave them, uh, um, uh, like, let's say, two weeks of morphine, right? Yeah. The brain went up, the brain went down. When we started giving the zebrafish the psychedelics, there was so much more gray area in between there. It became difficult to untangle it, and, and that's sort of like at the – and that would be the sort of the bleeding edge where we're at with neuroscientific probing of the nature of consciousness. And it's, it's all exciting stuff. You could probably yeah, hear it in my voice. I get a little, you know, I get all amped up and excited about it. But, you know, more recently, it's my efforts have been on uh, just helping people untangle this notion of like, uh, don't just dismiss things as drugs and drugs are bad because you're, you're really conflating the the situation enormously, and there's a better approach to having those conversations. The media in general, it's kind of it takes these uh, drug scare stories and inflates them. You know, you see them a lot in states where maybe the people um, who are trying to ban create them are putting press releases out, and they know how to go through the media like that. And um, do you ever? I mean. I'm sure the answer is yes, but do you ever, as, as a scientist, get frustrated with how the media reports, uh, especially drug scare, quote-unquote, stories? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was it's incredibly frustrating when you hear, um, woman dies of a dangerous new plant compound that you need to make sure your kids don't have. Kratom, the latest killer, right? <laughs> then you actually go look at the police report when this woman died and she had three gunshot wounds in her chest. But for some reason, Kratom is being linked as the cause of death. And, and so as a younger man, I would say, you know, then I would just start banging against the walls and yelling and, and doing this. But you also just have to step back and say, okay, journalists are people too. They're just trying to do their job. They don't know any better. So how can we engage with this problem in a productive manner rather than just screaming and yelling and pointing the finger and trying to blame? And so I guess at the very least, you – and I think that as as public consciousness has grown about sort of um, the media and especially when we think of like – mainstream media having a position um, and having a perspective that there are that they are trying to keep out there and that there are they're they're trying to influence things in a certain way then people have become much more skeptical of just sort of what is accepted at face value and they're digging into sources a little bit more 
Um, and, and I also think people are less afraid to call bullshit when it's bullshit or, or when there's a, an idea of bullshit. And so, you know, it, in some ways, yes, I get frustrated. Uh, a younger version of myself, those frustrations were just anger and <laughs> you know, not funneled into productive uh, attempts at trying to fix the problem and sort of just feeding the fuel on the fire. And so my advice to, to those out there that are dealing with this at their local level um, is the more, the more calm and rational you can speak to people that are in the state government or in the federal government or in industry or in the media and allow them to make mistakes and, and let them make mistakes so you can help them through those mistakes, the more productive you can get your energy and your sort of efforts out there. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just, as with most everything, it's a confluence of many factors, um, but sort of tangling, untangling the bullshit and getting down to what the actual root cause of uh, these certain issues are and then exposing those. Um, generally, once you do that, there are other people that see the bullshit and they'll start pointing it out as soon as they see it and, and uh, community support grows. So, you know, find ways to productively engage with your local politicians who are just people who are just trying to do their job and make the world better as they see it, um, but maybe are completely unaware of what you know or what your personal experiences have been. And so I guess the only, now that I said personal experience, the only thing that no one can take away from you is your truth. And so if you were addicted to opiates or you were an alcoholic and now they're trying to make it illegal in your state, you have to understand there are so much value in saying this helped me not overdose and die from opiates. And I'd like to continue to afford people that opportunity as well. No one can take that away from you. And it's helpful in sharing your story. Um, so if you're going to get past anything, your personal story is one of the things that you can really get passionate about. And then there's, you know, let science fill in for the rest. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you developed the cannabis lag lab technician program at Hawking College. Were there cultural hurdles you had to jump through to get that going? Like, were there administrators worried it might be risky? Um, Hawking College was, was actually, um, you know, so, so I was, I was doing a postdoc in Northern California. Um, from like, uh, early 2012 through 2017. After that postdoc, I jumped into the cannabis space full-time professionally. I was doing um, cultivation optimization or resource efficiency work um, just to reduce the sort of carbon footprint of growing cannabis plants inside. Mm -hmm. uh, when I came back to Ohio, um, I had had enough experience in the regulated cannabis market in California to where I could see things that were set up in Ohio that were sort of tripwires, right? So while on paper, the idea that public universities needed to do the testing for the program looked great, I knew that none of the universities were going to do that. They get a lot of their money from the feds. It's illegal at the federal government. They don't want to put that at risk. So I say that because I went around to a bunch of different colleges in Ohio and said, hey, do I, does anyone want, to, want me to apply to be a testing lab for this school? Almost every college said no. They don't even want to try. Hawking College was the first to say, this might be a good opportunity for us. 
not only because it's a revenue stream that, you know, we can bring in money for like the library with, but we can also, we're also in the midst of developing a laboratory sciences major and cannabis is a vastly, vastly growing industry. They need more students to, to have trading experience in it. So maybe we can um, get Cachet in here to develop that laboratory sciences program while also starting the cannabis lab. So there was an institutional resistance to the idea of cannabis coming on to a, uh, a college campus an accredited college campus, um, but there were conversations like, oh, what if parents don't want to send their students to a campus that has a cannabis lab on it? And so, you know, I would let these conversations unfold and then I raise my hand and they go, okay, what, what do you got to say, JC? And I go, does anyone here believe that there's not cannabis on the campus already? today you know so like just sort of pointing those things out helps you get through those um those conversations there those are discussions and that's so most colleges didn't want to do it because they were afraid of the repercussions let me tell you this as soon as hawking embraced it and understood that it would be good for them the amount of news articles in national media outlets that they had the amount of times that reporters wanted to come and talk to me about it Yes, they went out on a limb, but they were very quickly rewarded for that limb. And other colleges are now uh, much more open about integrating. So Ohio State now has a cannabis course in their law program. Um, I get emails all the time from other universities that are trying to start these programs. And so from an institutional perspective, you know, I've been, I've been banging on the table about doing cannabis research at universities all the way back to Denison University where I went to undergrad. Um, so they're becoming more open to it. What I will say is there's a big difference between the West Coast and the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And so even though Hocking College was bringing a cannabis lab on the campus and providing a new major for, you know, Appalachia, the region, for to get their students educated and to get a good paying job as a laboratory tech in a cannabis lab, you know, anybody would want that, especially the students. Gosh, if I could have gone through chemistry 101, learning about cannabis and not salts and sugars, it would have been way more engaging. <laughs> yeah. um, but I did run into, you know, I'd be in my office and someone would walk by and they'd, they'd bop in and they'd introduce themselves and they go, you know, I think it's great you're doing this, but, you know, come on, medical cannabis, let's, let's just, uh, it's all a joke, right? We're all just doing this <laughs> so we can get to legal cannabis, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I've, ha I've had to and I continue to fight back against the idea that there's no such thing as medical cannabis. There is no therapeutic value to cannabis. People just want to get stoned and that it is what it is, and that's what it is. That's not the case. And so I have this, there's a giant book uh, that's put out by National Institutes of Health about the most recent research on the therapeutic value of cannabis. So anytime someone would bop their head in my office and say, yeah, it's just this thing as medical, right? They'd give me a shoulder bump and say, come on, we know what you're doing here. I'd throw <laughs> this book at them like it was the Bible and say, look, go read this, and then come back to me about your mother who has Parkinson's or dementia 
wouldn't stand to benefit from consuming the most neuroprotective compound we know of on the planet, cannabinoids, right? Like, yeah. oh, your mom does have dementia? Yes, that's horrible. It's horrible for you to see her just sort of disappear into the darkness. Her personality, you know, who she was, the body's still there, but the mind is gone. If people weren't so judgmental or sort of ingrained by dismissing cannabis as something that stoners do and that's it, and realize that maybe if their mom started taking cannabis at 50, she'd still be around and not sort of just a, a vegetable at this point. You know, it really starts to open people's eyes when you can break down those sort of stereotypical prejudices at the onset and say, no, you know, this isn't just for cancer patients. It, it could stand to benefit someone you know. And luckily at this point, most people are about one degree um, removed away from someone who has benefited from safe access to medical cannabis through a, a licensed professional, right? And hopefully we'll get there with Kratom. I just hope that the fight with cannabis and the, and the fight with Kratom is there is value in having them in their natural plant form, especially as it relates to that slow burn on method of administration. Thank you very much, Dr. Jonathan Cachet. You can check out Dr. Cachet on Twitter at J Cachet at J-C-A-C-H-A-T. His email is jc at ccvresearch.com. And I'll have more links in the description. The music is Risey. The song is called Memories of Thailand. Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for kratomscience.com. Take care.